We understand there might have been a mistake this morning in handing out bulletins that some of you may have received last week's bulletins. So on the front of the bulletin where it says in white Oaklawn Bible Church, just under that there's a date. It should say August 19th on there. Now, if you were given one of last week's bulletins, um, would you please slip up your hand and one of the ushers will get a current bulletin to you. Anybody? Nobody wants to admit they hadn't noticed until now. No. <laughs> okay, great. We appreciate your help with that. And the kids already figured out they're dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, some of them. The rest of them can go. Thanks. All right, enough business. Let's get into the Word of God. Let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And this morning we're going to be looking into verses 32 through the end of the chapter. The passage of Scripture that we're looking into this morning is a passage of Scripture that speaks quite a bit about persecution. You know, it's easy to talk about our faith when we have no cost. But when there's a personal cost, potential for a personal price, living out the faith can be a challenge. Now, some naively think that persecution only took place in the first century. But persecution has taken place throughout the history of the church, and not only throughout the history, but even through the present. We see those who face death because of their personal faith. Just this week, an article came out about crucifixion. Now, many of you would think, yeah, there was crucifixion in the first century. There's actually crucifixion today. The article discusses how the Muslim Brotherhood has begun persecuting and crucifying opponents to their system in Egypt today. An article entitled Arab Spring Run Amok, Brotherhood Starts Crucifixions. I would like to read just a couple of quotes from the article. The Arab Spring takeover of Egypt by the Muslim Brotherhood has run amok with reports from several different media agencies that the radical Muslims have begun crucifying opponents of newly installed President Mohammed Morsi. A little later in the article, it goes on to discuss how some of the victims can include Egyptian Christians, and then he makes this statement that extra brutality is reserved for Christians, but the crucifixions, because of Islamic doctrine, are required by the Quran. The time and other details about the crucifixions were not readily available. Not only are there crucifixions in Egypt, but there are terrible, terrible pockets of persecution throughout the world. And yes, perhaps even some of you have experienced persecution. An unbelieving family member, a hostile environment in the workplace, Persecution to one degree or another faces many Christians. And that's what the text we're looking into this morning is going to discuss. As believers, let me say this. It's important to be ready before persecution takes place. 
rather than trying to find some balance, some strength in the midst of persecution. And here, the Word of God talks about the importance of a rock-solid faith that holds on to the truth of God no matter what. And what we're going to see as we look at this text is this. God commends it. God commends those who stand firm in the faith, in the face of anything. And as believers, we want to be commended by God. We want to please God in the way that we live. So as we come to this text, notice the 32nd verse. What we find shared with us through this commendation for the recipients of this letter in the first century is, first of all, the proper way to live out our faith. And what we find is, if we're going to really live out our faith, we want to be those who persist in standing our ground in the face of suffering. Now, sometimes we feel a little bit like this lighthouse. Everything comes crashing against us, and it would be easier to topple sometimes than to stand your ground. But God wants us to be those who stand our ground in His strength. Notice what the 32nd verse says. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in the great contest in the face of suffering. The recipients of this letter were those who had stood their ground. They knew what it was to face suffering because when we look historically at when the book of Hebrews was written, we find that it was written roughly during the time of Nero. Now, I don't know how many of you are Roman historians or know that much about Nero, but let me say this. Nero was a psychopath. He hated Christians and did everything he could to wipe out Christianity. He blamed them for the burning of Rome, which wasn't their fault. He would bring them into arenas, and he would actually put animal skins on them, loose wild beasts, and have them shredded in front of those onlookers for sport. As a matter of fact, a Roman mosaic shows exactly uh, what I'm talking about. The beasts would come and the Christians would be put into the arena naked to shame them and then face the wild beasts and be mowed down by these animals. The passage of Scripture that we're looking into here shares with us that many of the recipients of this letter had faced the potential for this. They had faced terrible, terrible persecution. And yet, they stood their ground. You know, it's easy to talk about how strong our faith is when it's not put to the test. But a perspective seems to come out of those who face persecution, weather the storm, and make it through. And you know what you find in the Scripture as you find those who have faced persecution? You know what their outlook is? They consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Read the book of Acts. Every time they were beaten and thrown in jail, they said that they counted it a privilege to be thought of as worthy to suffer for Christ. What a strong statement. Paul said this in the book of Philippians, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to stand firm. But notice the unity aspect. What gives us the ability to stand firm is our connectedness. And that's certainly brought out in the context of Hebrews chapter 10 where it talked about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Facing persecution is so much better when we have those who can support us, come alongside us, and allow us to have their support during that time of persecution. But it goes on. We're contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose us. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. And then I want us to really key in on this 29th verse. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. That word granted carries with it the idea of a gift. Something that's given for benefit. This is what God gives to some believers. The opportunity to suffer for Him. And God wants us as believers to understand the importance of standing. Now again, look at this 32nd verse. Notice it says they stood their ground. But then it goes on to say this. You stood your ground in the great contest. Now the word that's translated contest in our English Bibles is a word in the original language that means athlete. But it was often a word that referred to the arena. And perhaps the writer of Hebrews was pointing us to the fact that for many of these Christians, they had the potential of going into the arena or perhaps surviving the arena. Real persecution was faced by these people. They stood their ground. And then the text goes on. You stood your ground in the great contest. Now look at this. In the face of suffering. When we look at this word suffering, it too is an interesting word in the original language. There are many words that are translated suffering in our English Bibles. But this particular word is a word that describes being pressed. As a matter of fact, in many documents, it was used of a grape being pressed at a wine press. The image would be that of shedding blood, of the tremendous pressure and pain that would be placed upon someone by their persecution. So what God is commending these people for is this. They stood their ground in the face of terrible, terrible persecution. Look at some of the ways it's further cataloged for us in the 33rd verse. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult. As the first century church faced persecution, reproach was a large part of what was directed toward them to try to shame them away from the faith. And let me say this. There are many who face that on a daily basis as believers today, not in some far-off country, but even in our own. At times, there are family members that don't like the change that they see that Christ brings into a person's life. So they will pressure they will tell that person, since you've gotten religion, you've gotten boring, and I can't stand what's happened to you. They face that on a daily basis. 
Sometimes it's in the college classroom. Man, you believe that? Come on. I thought you were more sophisticated than that. Sometimes it's in the workplace. You don't go out with us and carry on? Well, you're not a team player. So there's no advancement here for you. Reproach is a part of the daily lives of many believers. But what the Word of God tells us to do in this text is this. Stand your ground. Continue to stand faithfully. Don't compromise. Expect that at times you will face these terrible insults. But then look at what else we find. It says not only were they exposed to insult and persecution, but that they also stood beside those who were facing such things. And that brings us to our second point. We want to prop up others who face persecution. In many countries, there are those who are jailed for their faith. And with courage, the church body around them will come and visit them in jail. There's a temptation to distance ourselves. Well, if they got in trouble for their faith, the last place I'm going to go is around them because I don't want to get in trouble for my faith. But what the Word of God commends these people for is the very fact that's brought out here in the 33rd verse, they stood side by side with those who were so treated. Now, what the NIV translates as stood side by side is better translated, it's, it's actually the Greek word for fellowship. And what it's communicating to us is this. When you fellowship with someone during these times of persecution, you're not only there side by side, but you are there sharing things with them. You are praying for them. You are supporting them by your physical presence. Anything that you can do to come alongside them, but also to share in this work with them, you do. That's the idea. I like the way Kenneth Wiest translated this passage. Notice he says this. You remain steadfast throughout the great struggle consisting of sufferings. On the one hand, this, while you were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction... And on the other hand, this, while you made yourselves fellow partakers of those who experienced the same. That's the idea that's being communicated here. They were fellow partakers. And you know, the Scripture shares with us this important principle. When part of the church body suffers, the whole should suffer with it. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. You know, a few years back, I had an attack of gout. No, that's not my foot. That's a lot prettier than my foot. (laughs) Let me tell you something. When I had gout, the rest of my body didn't say, you jerk toe. What is the matter with you? My hand didn't go up and slap it and say, you know, quit that. Stop it. I was suffering in my toe, and the whole body suffered right along with it. And the rest of the body really ministered to it. I elevated it. I ate cherries, which I was told would make it go away. I tried medication. I didn't self-medicate with cherries. The medication that the doctor gave me didn't work, so I ate a massive bowl of cherries every couple of days, and it went away. Maybe it was psychosomatic, I don't know. Maybe it was an excuse to eat cherries. But 
It worked. But, but here's the thing. The rest of the body ministered to it. I cradled that toe gently with my hands. I was very careful to walk on the side of my foot instead of where my big toe was. Because at any point, if anything touched it, I shrieked. That's the way the Word of God describes the church body. When one part suffers, the rest suffer with it. And this is what the people are commended for here. They are those who sympathized with those who were under such treatment. They cared for them. Now, notice the text goes on. As we look at the first part of the 34th verse, it says, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Some of the things that these first century believers went through and people still go through today was the idea of the confiscation of property. For many, they face loss because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So what gives them the ability to stand their ground? How can they possibly make it through such a difficult time? And the answer is the last part of that 34th verse. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now that brings us to our next point. We need to prioritize in light of eternal values. You know, when you look at this picture, you see a junk car lot. Cars just piled one on top of the other, and you think, what a pile of junk. Now, when I was a kid, I used to joke with my sister and tell her that was the women's parking lot, which she always appreciated. But what's being communicated here? What are we to get from this? Let me share with you. At one point, these cars were showroom new. They were someone's pride and joy. They agonized over the decision to purchase that car. They really extended themselves in acquiring the car. They pulled it off the lot with that new car smell. They proudly drove it down the street looking at their neighbors, you know. This car was something that was important to them. But then, look where it winds up one day. The junk pile. That's the way things are in this life. The possessions that are confiscated are doomed to destruction anyway, was their perspective. What really lasts... And what really counts are the eternal things. We need to understand that God has something more for us. And that's what the Word of God really hammers home to us. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says this of those who faced difficulty because of their faith. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Now look at this last statement. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the perspective. 
God wants us to understand that there's so much more than just what we have here on this earth. What we have here on this earth comes and it goes, doesn't it? Those brand shiny, spanking new things that we get wear out. That favorite t-shirt that you have becomes so ratty that eventually the wife won't let you wear it out of the house, right? All of those things that we have and that we hold on to, gone. They wear away. They don't last. What we need to do instead is focus on the things that last. And Notice how these things are described in the last part of that 34th verse. They are better. They are lasting. Now let's think about this. They are better. Jesus said this, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, if I'm so focused on the things of this earth that don't last... That's going to show in my worldview about spiritual things. I will become so trapped by this world that I don't even think about the eternal. On the other hand, if I have the eternal perspective, I start to view things as, you know what's really important? My relationship with God. Developing that. Seeing that I know Him and grow in that relationship with Him. That's what we'll do. It's a huge perspective builder. And doesn't God put us to tests in this all the time? God wants us to understand the importance of the eternal. It's so easy to get bogged down in the things of this life because we can see and touch and smell. They are there for us to experience right away. But the things that last the eternal. Those are the important things. I've shared this before, but you know, as a pastor, I've been with many people as they die. And for most of them, when they're dying, they're not talking about, make sure the car gets waxed this week. Make sure that uh, the landscapers manicure that lawn. You know what they're talking about? If they're Christians, they're talking about heaven. Their family. The intangibles. The things that can't be measured. That's what God wants us to have as a worldview. That thought of the eternal. As we go on in the text, we find a perspective that keeps us faithful. Those who are commended here were faithful people. They stood their ground. They persevered. And really, the Bible has a lot to say about perseverance. What he says, first of all, is this. We need to persevere and look forward to receiving what is promised. Look at the 35th verse. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. Now, I want us to think about what's being said in these two verses. First of all, don't throw away your confidence. Look, when your confidence is rocked because you're going through difficulty, and by the way, 
Difficulty will rock your confidence. Persecution can be something that definitely rocks your confidence. But let me say this. If it didn't rock you, then it wouldn't be persecution. Persecution is a test. It's meant to be difficult that we might grow and become stronger. So when those things come, don't become unconfident. Understand the importance of trusting in God and in relying on His strength. The word that the NIV translates confidence is actually a word in the original language that means to be outspoken. So really, what the writer of Hebrews is saying this is, don't lose your outspokenness about your faith. Don't become a person who, when you have an opportunity to speak on behalf of God, you shrink away and you clam up and you say, oh, you know, I'm not sure I want to go there. Be that person who is willing to be outspoken about God's truth. Because that's what God wants to see in us. And listen, when we do, it is richly rewarded. God takes note. When we see this word richly rewarded in our English Bibles, it's the word mega rewarded if we were to translate it from the original language. It's a huge reward that we have to look forward to. To the glory of God. That's the perspective. Suffer now, be rewarded later. Not, I'll get more out of things now and not worry about the reward. Now, if you ask most Christians, which way would you rather live? Oh, I'd rather suffer now and receive my reward later. We will say that in our words, but as we've seen through our study in Hebrews, it's not the words that matter. It's the life, the action, that truly shares what we think. So remaining consistent, persevering in the face of persecution, that's where the test really comes in. Notice the 36th verse. You need to persevere. Now, I like this definition for persevere here on this slide. It means to persist in anything undertaken, to maintain a purpose in spite of difficult obstacles or discouragement, to continue steadfastly. That's what God wants us to do as far as our perseverance. He wants us to hang in there. And listen, once we have done that, once we have done the will of God, we look forward to what He has promised. Isn't that a great verse, a great perspective? Struggle now. Be rewarded later. There are so many things in life like that, aren't there? When it comes to our finances, yeah, I can live paycheck to paycheck now. But what happens when all of that's done? At the end of life, I have nothing. Right? So many things in daily life are like that, but most of all, the spiritual is like that. Blow it off now, and you don't have a foundation later. God wants us to be people with that solid foundation. Final thought. Pleasing God comes through living our faith. When we pick it up 
in the 37th verse. The writer of Hebrews shares with us some thoughts from the Old Testament. Now, the passages that we're looking at that are quoted in this text are from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, from the books of Habakkuk and from Isaiah. And what he's sharing, rather than going back to those verses and looking at them, I just want to share the theme that he wants us to understand in this text. So let's think about this theme. The first theme is this. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now what is that referring to? Obviously, this refers to the return of Jesus Christ. Has that not been a recurring theme through the book of Hebrews as we've looked at this? The perspective is this. All of the stuff that we hold dear in this world can be gone like that at Christ's return. No longer important. That perspective will be right in our face when Christ returns. And He's coming without delay. Notice the viewpoint of the writer of Hebrews. This is something that's imminent. Not something way off in the distance. This could happen right away. That's the viewpoint. You know, I find that when I focus on the possibility of Christ's return and my rapture, that motivates me to live for Christ. If I'm looking and saying, wow, this could happen at any time, it changes the way I live, it changes my value system, it changes all of that. That's why the Scripture brings this out for those who are persecuted. Live looking toward Christ's return. There's deliverance there. That's the idea. When I was in India, and I shared in many of the churches in India, they stressed the return of Jesus Christ because of the persecution that they faced on a daily basis. They talked about it way more and people talk about it here because of what they go through day to day. The return of Jesus Christ is presented in this text as near and He will not delay. But then look at the next statement. But my righteous one will live by faith. We live by faith in the sense that it is faith that brings us into spiritual life. This passage is also quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. But it's also the idea of obedience. Our righteousness comes through faith living. As I trust God, as I trust the imminent return of Jesus Christ, it affects the way I live. It changes my perspective. And you know, if there's nothing else you take from this sermon, understand this. Our perspective in all of this is what drives our behavior. Your behavior is a reflection of your worldview. It absolutely is. All the words that we can muster don't mean a thing. It's our actions that show where our heart truly is and what's truly important to us. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is this. We don't want to be ashamed at Christ's coming. 
John said this, Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. That's a powerful verse, isn't it? None of us want to be ashamed at Christ's return, and we are unashamed by being obedient, by being those righteous ones that live by faith. The last part of this text goes on to say this, if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. When we think of earlier passages in the book of Hebrews, we think of chapters 3 and 4 where the children of Israel came right up to the edge of the promised land. God had told them to go in and possess it. And remember what happened? They shrunk back. They said, the opponents are too powerful. We're like little minuscule grasshoppers, and they're like giants. We're not going to go into that. We're going to stay away. We're going to stay back. We're going to shrink away from following in faith. I think that same concept, that same language is used here. Listen, we don't want to be those who shrink away. We don't want to fall back. The Christian life should be a continual growth in Jesus Christ. No retreat. That's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to shrink back. And when we move ahead, persisting with perseverance, the Word of God tells us that God is pleased with us. When we shrink back, God is not. Look at the last thought that we find. Verse 39 shares this with us. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now, I think other versions did a little better job than the NIV in translating this particular verse. The English Standard Version does a really good job because it gives us a much more literal translation. It says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the more literal translation. The word saved isn't in the original text. The word preserve their souls is. So let's talk about what this means. What happens when I shrink back? When I shrink back, I put myself on the course of destruction. As we saw in the warning passage just last week, there are consequences for our sin. If I live a lifestyle that puts me right in the crosshairs of sin, then I'm going to pay consequences and I'm going to experience the same thing that those around me who are being destroyed by their sin, face as well. Temporally, here and now, I will face those consequences. You're putting yourself in a position to suffer the outcome of sin here and now. God does not want us to be those who shrink back and see the guilt that can be caused by shrinking back. God doesn't want us to shrink back and experience the terrible consequences to sin that we experience by shrinking back. God doesn't want the break in fellowship with Him that we experience when we shrink back. None of those things should be a part of our life. We shouldn't be those. But instead, what should we be? We should be those who believe or who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, what does it mean to preserve the soul? The soul in the Hebrew mind was much more than just the non-material part of a man. 
The soul was the entire person, the, the life force of the individual, if you will. And so when the Scripture says that we preserve our souls, it's not only talking about our eternal life soul, but it's talking about the very soul of what we have right here and right now. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 6, we were told that we have the promise of God as an anchor for the soul. What it meant was, that's our place of stability. That's where we go in the midst of difficulty and trial because that gives us a solid foundation, an anchor, so that we're not moved during the storms of life. God wants us to have souls that are preserved by that hope right here and right now. When you look at Christians that have a solid faith, they are rocks. I have seen Christians go through things that are unimaginable, and they are as solid as rocks. They have a foundation for their soul that's unbelievable. That's what God wants to see in our lives. That kind of solid foundation for your life so that when difficulty comes, you experience the pain, but you have something that holds you in the midst. When we have the right perspective and we live our faith, that's what we'll find. But it also carries with it in this text the idea of preserving the soul. And what I think that means is a protection of the soul. Now, what do we mean by protect the soul? Your soul is the place where your decisions are made, where your behavior will eventually manifest itself. If you have a strong soul, it's strong because you've protected it. You haven't allowed it to be corrupted by the images of this world and the thoughts and the values of this world. You've seen the importance of standing strong. You've seen the importance of not putting things into your soul that are going to corrupt it and damage it. You live by faith, and faith means the teachings of God. That's what God wants us to do. That's who God wants us to be. Those people of strength and purpose because our soul is preserved by standing strong, not shrinking back. This morning we've seen the Word of God address a lot of issues about persecution and the importance of standing strong in our faith and persevering. Let me encourage you this morning with the fact that while you may not be facing persecution today, there's no promise about tomorrow. When we look at many of the things that go on in our country as far as hostility toward the things of our faith, we're not that far off from what's described in this passage and in other countries. We have no guarantees that we'll continue to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy as far as our faith. In my short life, I've seen tremendous change that's taken place where there's more and more hostility that comes as a result of my faith. Some of you are facing that hostility today. Like I said, in the workplace or the home, you're facing challenges and difficulties. 
So here's the point. You'd better get a perspective now about what's really important, what really makes you stand strong, what really gives you what you're looking for. Because if persecution comes and you don't go into it with that faith, you'll be those who shrink back. My encouragement, protect that soul, preserve that soul by turning to God's word and God's truth, by developing your relationship with him through worship and prayer and reading his word, through being discipled. That's where the stability and strength come in to give us the ability to face those challenges. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the call that it is to us to live our faith. May we be those who stand strong and persist, not those, Lord, who shrink back. Give us the ability to do this through the power of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.